you may not admit it when you're sitting down with your peers or you're on a Zoom call with your peers, but you have those same emotions, you have those same doubts, those same struggles, and you want to know that there is some type of hope out there that you can get over that obstacle. I'm David Otey, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. In this episode, you will hear from my colleague and fellow speaking coach, Michael Davis. You'll learn the reason why speakers tell stories. You'll pick up on what makes a story, why it's not just a collection of events, and why stories are the key to engaging your listeners in a way that you simply can't do with data and evidence. Welcome to this episode of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Otey. This show is a combination of content and conversations, and today's show is going to be a conversation with fellow speaking coach and speaker Michael Davis, we were just comparing notes and realized we've known each other for nine years, even though we've known each other most of that time in the virtual world, initially through an online class that we took. And I believe uh, we may have met for the first time a couple of, face-to-face a couple of years ago at a sure. Toastmasters convention. Wasn't that right, Michael? It was, 2018, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, welcome. Uh, Thank you very much. One of the much. things that you and I have in common is... TEDx, I know you're involved quite a bit uh, in your home city in coaching TEDx speakers. I am. I've been coaching since 2015, and I was supposed to be a TEDx speaker this year uh, before COVID hit. They gave me the option to do a virtual presentation. I decided to wait until next year, which probably is going to be no different, and I'll go ahead and do the talk next year if they go virtual. Uh, our, our local TEDx did something unique this year. They did the first drive-in TEDx. Drive-in TEDx? I didn't know yeah. that. Now, that's Cincinnati, all- right? Yeah, it is Cincinnati. And they recorded all the speakers, showed their videos on the big screen. People attended, socially distanced, and it was it was a fun event. Really? They did it as a drive-in movie? Yes. It was really <laughs> cool. How interesting. How interesting was that? Uh, the, one of the last presentations I did for a repeat client of mine, a scientific association, was submitted on video. That mm-hmm. was different for me. And one of the things that we did in order for me to try to get more engagement with that audience was I was also an exhibitor in their virtual trade show. It's the first time I'd had a virtual booth Yeah, (laughs) in a virtual trade show. Yeah. I've, well, I've been focused, uh, 50% of my coaching has been on virtual presentation skills since March. Mm -hmm. We've, we've had to do it. We've had to do it. That's right. Yeah. No, no matter when you're, when you're attending to this episode, as we're recording it, we are still in the throes of the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic. And obviously that's affecting the way speakers do things these days and the way coaches yes. do things too. Yeah. It has definitely leveled the playing field. Uh, you know, the organization we're also both part of, Stage Time University, mm-hmm. we've t- told all of our members that this has leveled the playing field in the speaking world. People Mm. that have been speaking for decades professionally are really struggling with this. So if you're brand new to paid speaking, it's a great time to get in. Now, why do you say that? 
because professionals, uh, like I said, the, those that have been in it for a long time, they're adjusting to this new world too. If all they've ever known is standing in front of a group and speaking mm. and getting a check, they've got to learn. They're going back to square one. Okay. Just like somebody who's coming into it. So in that respect, it is definitely a good time to join the speaking world because you can come in comfortable as a virtual speaker. And if you're preparing a virtual presentation, I, I get the sense that that gives you a certain amount of control that you might not have walking into a room and being in front of a live audience. In what respect do you mean? Well, for example, when I gave my presentation, I recorded the whole thing. I had the whole script running on a, on a teleprompter, you know, yeah. or, or I was seeing it right in front of the camera lens. Sure. <laughs> um, Whereas if I'd had to internalize that to present it in front of a live audience, I might have been a little bit more in my head and stumbling over things. So, And, of course, with recording it, I could re-record a section of it and put in an edit if I wanted to. Editing's a beautiful tool and power that we have, yes. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> we don't want to over-edit for perfection, but, yeah, we could take out some really bad chunks if they just don't flow right. That's right. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think it can be advantageous. And here's the bottom line, David. You know this. We have to adopt to this. It is not going away. Not anytime soon. That's right. As yeah. we record this, it is continuing to get worse. There are vaccines on the on the horizon, but it'll be, I understand, months before that brings everything under control. And And even when that has happened, I suspect there's still going to be a lot of Companies and a lot of meeting planners who are going to be thinking, hmm, you know, we've figured out now that we can do this virtually. We can have a speaker appear without having to go to the expense of travel and, uh, and all the logistics that accompany that. Why not do something different than what we were doing pre-COVID? Oh, yeah. There are going to be huge budget savings for meeting planners, and that's why we have to be ready to present both ways. When this is over, the impact will not be. The, the word hybrid has been thrown around a lot the last couple of months, and I think in, in our industry, absolutely, we have to get good at both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, have to get good at both. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Um, Let's shift the focus here just a little bit. Let's shift more from the business of speaking to the content, the kind of thing that you sure. and I often talk about and that we've studied about. Um, we have, uh, as you know, the, the primary audience of this program is people who give technical presentations, hence the title, The, the Power of Story and Science. Yeah. And I've talked about the science of story, mm -hmm. you know, of, of how hearing a story actually prompts expression of oxytocin in the brain, which is that neurotransmitter that leads to feelings of empathy for someone else. In this case, empathy of that the audience feels toward the speaker. And mm -hmm. the key thing there that I've learned is that for that story to have that effect, there has to be some tension to it. Yes. Tension sustains attention. Would you agree? Right. Absolutely, it does. Uh, Michael Haig, who you know that we uh, know through Stage Time University, is a former Hollywood scriptwriting consultant. And he taught me years ago that the purpose of story is to elicit emotion. Mm. Let's underscore that. The purpose of story is to elicit emotion. Okay. 
And when he says emotion, it doesn't mean we're 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 crying and sobbing helplessly, mm-hmm. right? That's right. not it. Right. Or, or laughing hysterically in the aisles. That's not it. But it triggers some type of emotion. You mentioned empathy, uh, oxytocin gets released. I know cortisol, dopamine, endorphins. All of these things flood into our system when we hear a sensory rich emotional story. Right. And, can, and then what is the what is the effect of that? Why is that what a speaker is trying to achieve? Well, we give presentations really for two or three reasons. But one that I learned was we give presentations to give people hope. But they may be struggling. They may be a scientist who's struggling to to find an answer to a, a, a question, let's say the vaccine that they've been working yes. on for COVID. Mm-hmm. It could be, uh, I, I've heard stories over the years of when AIDS first became part of our society. I mean, it was just inf- infecting so many people. The, the scientists struggled to understand what this truly was and to how to overcome that. Well, you can tell a quick story that says, well, we had this virus, we struggled to overcome it, and it took us 28 years. There's no emotion in that. Mm-hmm. Right? What I want to hear as a listener and I'm not a scientist, but I still love to hear some of those stories if they take me into the minds of the researchers and the scientists and talk about their day-to-day struggles when sometimes they felt like, we're never going to find an answer to this. And I just want to give up. But something inside them kept them going. Mm, something inside kept them going. Yeah. You it's, know, one of the things that I like to say about science is, is it's really, it's about solving mysteries. Yes. And, and mysteries make great stories. They certainly do. Uh, that's a great example you bring up. It's part, man. Sometimes you think you've got your sounds turned off and you don't. And <laughs> <laughs> you don't. Uh, Real life. We mentioned a name earlier, Park Howell, who uh, runs podcast business, A Story. He inspired this idea of, of how I teach people story and, and mystery. Okay. This, you tell me if this is a good story. A handsome man meets a beautiful woman. They fall in love. They get married. They have three children. And they live happily ever after. Is that a good story? It kind of goes right to the happily ever after. I mean, you don't... It doesn't leave you wondering what's going on, what they had to overcome to get there. Yes. So we can change that story with just a few words. Okay. Handsome man meets a beautiful woman. They fall in love, they get married, they have three children, and they live happily ever after until the husband disappeared. Mm. Now now we have a note of tension. There you go. Now what just happened in your brain? Neuro, I forget the term, you would know, all the chemicals get released in our body because our brains do not like uncertainty. Mm, it has you've introduced to know. uncertainty. Okay. That's it. What happened? I mean, all kinds of questions can go through your mind. What happened? Did he leave the family? Was he kidnapped? Was he murdered? I mean, well, all these things go through our heads. And we need to know. And that's what a good story does. It introduces fairly quickly some tension mm-hmm. that makes us want to hear more. Would it be fair to say that it does that by introducing a, a note of the unexpected? Absolutely. You don't expect it to hear until the husband disappeared. Right. 
we've been conditioned by fairy tales, fables, and Hollywood movies for the story to end fairly well. It ends with the yeah. happily ever after. That's right. Luke mm-hmm. blows up the Death Star and wins. Uh, <laughs> E.T. returns home. Uh, yes. Harry Potter defeats Voldemort. I mean, we have all these outcomes. And when we hear that, that takes us off track, our brain's like, what happened? Mm. And it needs to know more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. One of the things that I've been looking at recently it was the, the subject of that video recorded presentation that I told you about, so it's fresh in my mind. Sure. Is that, is this idea that comes from Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. But the idea is that, of course, that we have two ways of processing novel stimuli. System one, which is fast and intuitive and is constantly scanning our environment, saying, is everything okay? Is, are we free of any threats? And system two, which is quite different, it, it can... Uh, evaluate conflicting ideas and weigh options and come to conclusions. It's much more analytical, but it's also effortful. And it likes to sleep. It likes to rest. System two only wakes up when it's needed. And, and the thing that I, what made me think of that is that just a moment ago when you said until the husband disappeared, it was as if suddenly system two woke up. Yeah. I said, Oh, wait a minute. This requires investigating. Right. That's, I would guess, and having read Kahneman's book, probably not to the detail you have, System 2 now is asking those questions. Right. Kidnapped, murdered, died, but what what happened? Yeah, yeah. Because when it comes to holding conflicting ideas in your head at the same time, that is strictly a System 2 job. Yeah. System 1 can't do that. So System 1 is now suddenly, it was going along just fine thinking, okay, everything's fine, we've got the happily ever after, until... And then suddenly it's got an That's input it. it can't handle, so it has to go wake up system two. Yeah. yeah. Donald Miller, if you follow him at all, does uh, he does wonderful work in teaching how why stories should be simple. Oh, yes. Yeah, because, Donald Miller. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. in marketing, and science is the same way. Right. If we make the brain of our listeners work too hard, they're going to turn us, they're going to tune us out. That's right. Don't make the brain work. I, I Estimates are that the brain uses 25% of our energy that mm-hmm. we burn, even though it's only 2% of our weight. Well, let's not tax the brain of our listeners. Right. And I know you're going to be interviewing Randy Olson soon. And I am he's, looking forward to that. he's terrific. And he talks a lot about the trouble in the scientific world, mm-hmm. it, which to me was fascinating, even though I'm not a scientist. Mm-hmm. And, and how scientists often make it so much harder for their peers or non-scientists to understand their work because they're making the brains work too hard. That's right. He doesn't quite say it that way, but that's what I took away from it. So our job as communicators, especially in today's world with this technology, and we're being forced to look at screens now when we communicate so much, make it as easy as possible for the viewer to understand or the listener to understand your message. And that's also when we're in- introducing tension and conflict into the story. Mm-hmm. Make it as easy as possible for the audience to understand the message. Yes. Yeah. Um, Kahneman calls that creating cognitive ease, mm-hmm. you know, making it easy for system one to process what's going on. Yeah. But then the challenge with a technical presentation like a, a, a scientist or an engineer might give, is that at some point you need to switch on that system too when you're expecting them to evaluate your evidence. Sure. 
and, and come to some conclusion about your work. And uh, it turns out, you, you mentioned Randy Olson, it turns out that he's got a fascinating tool, doesn't he, for doing just that, for putting System 1 at ease and then strategically waking up System 2. And we're going to hear about that after we come back from this break. I'm David Odie. This is The Power of Story and Science. My guest today is Michael Davis, and we'll be right back. You are a knowledgeable expert, and you want your expertise to make a difference to your audience. But you can't see them and gauge their reactions. Therefore, you need new tools for engaging that unseen audience. Hi, I'm David Odie, offering you a way to pick up those tools. In my new self-paced online course, you will discover three ways to improve your story, one fascinating tool for hooking your audience's attention, and eight details in your physical environment that will set you apart from other virtual presenters. Today's technical presentations are going virtual, and that means you can reach a wider audience as long as you understand how to serve that audience. So join me for the online course, Own the Virtual Stage. Confidently connect with an unseen audience. Just go to ownthevirtualstage.com for details. Welcome back. I'm David Odie. This is The Power of Story and Science. And my guest today is Michael Davis. And we were just talking about building tension in a story and the importance of doing that even for a scientific presentation because you want to get your audience on your side you want them to getting what want them <laughs> you want them wanting what you want so that they'll yeah. get what you what you give them I, I fumbled that badly michael clear it up for me <laughs> well what we want i mentioned earlier we we want to give our audiences hope and i don't care if it's a scientific audience if it's a group of mothers it's if it's a group of business owners they're listening to you because they have some type of problem. Okay. And you may not be able to completely solve the problem, but they want hope that there are some steps they can take to make inroads on that problem. Mm -hmm. They want what you have. That's what great stories do. They don't tell us how wonderful you are in the beginning. Great storytellers introduce a problem and a challenge that they had themselves. And they take us through this journey of obstacle, 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 which it gets increasingly tougher to deal with. And at the end, they succeed okay. in some way. And it gives you the audience hope to think, oh, I can do that too. I can do that too. Right. It's the, it's the universal that the audience takes away from the particulars of your story. Yes. And that's where story uh, telling gets tricky for people because they often say, and you know, you're a coach too. They'll say, well, I haven't climbed Mount Everest. I haven't solved uh, the coronavirus problem. So who wants to hear me? It's not the external solution that people want. It's the internal. The internal. Okay. Tell me more about that. Well, there are two levels of conflict in every story. The external is, Mm -hmm. uh, Pick one. A boy wants to, to get girl. A woman wants to climb Mount Everest. The fox wants the grapes. 
Fox wants to get all of those. Well, that's not where the real story is. The story is the internal, the self-doubt, the mm. lack of self-worth, the mm-hmm. struggle, the, the, the lack of confidence. Can I do this? I, that's what people really want to know. That's where the hope is. Mm. I, say, I can feel is. that way too. And I know there's a stereotype of scientists that all they want is facts and figures. No, scientists are human beings too, right? Yeah. You may not admit it when you're sitting down with your peers or you're on a Zoom call with your peers, but you have those same emotions, you have those same doubts, those same struggles, and you want to know that there is some type of hope out there that you can get over that obstacle. That's ultimately what great stories do. And it's what Michael Haig meant when he said the purpose of stories to elicit emotion. Purpose of stories to elicit emotion. That's right. Yes. Yeah, it's not just to deliver facts. And and as someone else that we've mentioned, you, you talked about the, uh, well, I teased right before we went to the break, the, mm-hmm. this tool for quickly, <clears throat> excuse me, establishing some tension in a story, the ABT or and but therefore Tell me just a little bit about that. Yeah, and I'm not going to steal any thunder from your one of your future guests coming up, Randy right. Olson. Randy mm-hmm. is a former scientist turned filmmaker, and I heard him interviewed on a podcast a few years ago. And I my initial thought was that his concept makes so much sense, but his ABT model, which he is is. I'll never use the word perfecting. It's always improving, getting it out there to the world. He is such a proselytizer of this, and I'm <laughs> I'm following. I love it. What it does is it takes the bland story, which is just a bunch of facts and figures, mm-hmm. or the confusing story, which is it takes people all over the map, but there's no mm-hmm. real method to it, and it gives it structure, and it builds in the conflict we're talking about. And that's, right. I, I don't want to try to even explain it, because it's his baby, <laughs> let him do it. But yeah. I would encourage everyone to listen to that one in addition to this, because it will take you deep into a structure. And you never want your stories to sound formulaic, because they can get boring or sound like everything else. But right. his, his structure takes all that away. And it helps you personalize it, but build in that conflict. Right. So you're moving away from this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And in scientific uh, presentations, we so often get that, because that's really the nature of scientific writing. Mm -hmm. We found this problem, and we decided to try this solution, and this was our apparatus, and this was our procedure, and this was our result. Any questions? (laughs) That pretty much is the way a lot of scientists will present their work, because they're just presenting information in the same way you present in a paper. But the thing that I've pointed out is in one of my books is that the speaker's job is quite different from the writer's job. Yes. Because unlike the writer of a scientific paper who has to make sure that they don't use any first or second person, because the writer is not encountering the reader. When you're speaking, the speaker is encountering the listener. And so Mm -hmm. the use of first person and second person is entirely appropriate. Right. So you're asking scientists to rewire their way of thinking. That's right. (laughs) But here's the thing to always remember, if you're a scientist listening to this, as an audience member, if you want to help me, the public, understand, I Mm -hmm. want to hear your your journey. I don't need all the verbiage. I'm never going to understand most of that. What I want to know is, what was the problem? What did you do to get through it? 
What was the solution? What was the problem? What did she do to get through it? What was the solution? And I would add one more element to that. Yeah. What was the problem and why does that matter to me? That's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to me? Why was was it so important that you did this research? Why did you choose to expand the boundaries of human knowledge in that particular way, in that particular corner of the knowledge universe, so to speak? Yeah, and that's, that's a great point, David. And what I would add to that is when you're writing a presentation and you're going to, to give scientific data and information, as you're doing that, keep a person in mind. Keep a person in mind. Okay. Keep someone in in mind who would is your ideal, or I guess the the word I can't think of the word right now. Um, that would represent the person you're trying to help. So would that be an avatar. Avatar. That's what I'm trying. Okay. To think. I was trying to think of the movie too, and I could. Yeah. <laughs> Don't think of there are 20 million people I want to help. Mm-hmm. You can't picture 20 million people. What you can do is picture a woman named Jane, who is 57 years old, who got the coronavirus. And she has four kids and seven grandchildren, and she has a really good life, and she's always been healthy. And because of coronavirus, she almost died. Mm Mm-hmm. How many, or maybe she did die. How many Janes can you help survive so that their kids and their grandkids don't have to go through the pain that her family did? Yes. Yes. It personalizes so much more than just to say, I'm going to save 20 million people. Come to think of it, ask Randy about, there was an article he he mentions where the writer talked about when people are promoting saving the children in Africa. Right. Right. You yeah, tell the ahead. story of one person. One person. Logically, doesn't it make sense that if you tell the story of two, you'll be twice as empathetic? Mm-hmm. And the research is no, because we can't ex- uh, exponentially grow empathy. Right. I mean, by that logic, if there are a million children starving, wouldn't I be a million times more empathetic than the story of one? And actually, it's just the opposite. Yeah, it's like one millionth as empathetic. <laughs> exactly, because what, what, I know this is a, a saying that's true in the scientific community. A story of one is a tragedy. The story of a million is a statistic. Right. A statistic. Yes. Right? And we do not get people motivated. We don't motivate them. We don't encourage them. We don't get them standing up and saying, yes, I want to participate in this by giving them statistics. We've got to touch their emotions. And, you know, I think that that is one of the things that makes it so hard for scientists when they're giving presentations because they're not used to putting themselves at the center of a story. Yeah. The story is my data. You know, I I get pushback sometimes. I'm coaching a scientist. They'll say, but you know, I, I'm not there to entertain. And of course, I always say the opposite. Well, you're not, you're not there to entertain, but you're there to not bore. And the opposite of boredom is not entertainment, it's engagement. Yes. And, and the, the thing that I, I sometimes will tell them is, you may not realize it, but in your scientific training, you've become very skilled at understanding the story in your data. And the challenge is, how do you convey that story to someone else? Someone who doesn't immediately see 
the story in your data. Excellent point. It, it makes me think of this too, David. I don't need more information. Hmm. We don't. This is not the age of information. We're past that. I mean, I can get information anywhere and go to my $700 iPhone 11 right now and yeah. get anything <laughs> in the world I need as far as data and information. I don't need you for that. Right. What I need is your perspective. And you said it even better. I need your story about the data. Yeah. I was in the financial planning business for 30 years. You talk okay. about a group of people that cannot separate themselves from their competitors. Right. I mean, they all say the same thing. Yes. 99% of them do. What's the story behind the numbers? Mm -hmm. That's what I want to know. That's what will separate us out. What's the story? Yeah. Well, you know, I was in broadcast engineering for not quite that long. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that provided the catalyst for me to move out of television eventually and into what I'm doing now was a training project that I got involved in initially as the subject matter expert. And maybe you've heard me tell of this story before. We were, we, a group of engineers who were tasked with putting together this training project to support the rollout of this new digital technology made the mistake that engineers make. It was exactly what you were talking about. We thought people needed information. Yeah. We thought, just show people what's under the hood. Show them how this new technology works, and they'll be happy with it. And we tried that. We created a, a pilot program of our training project, and nobody liked it. And I thought, okay, how do we miss the mark? So then I did something radical that we obviously should have done first. I spent some time in the field right here in Denver with people who worked for a TV station and were using the legacy technology that was about to be replaced by this new technology. And I said, so what do you want to know about the new technology? And they said, we don't want to know about the new technology. I just want to know what I need to do to avoid getting yelled at or fired. You know, the, the, the problem that we had to solve wasn't lack of information. Yeah. It was fear. We had to take away their fear that their skills were going to become obsolete overnight. There you go. And that's emotion, right? We tap that's into right. the emotion. And as we're right, not only should you think of a Jane, as I used the example before, mm -hmm. go ask your audience sometimes. Yes. That's and don't right. ask them, what do you want to hear? They don't know what they want to hear. No. One of the brilliant aspects of Steve Jobs, flawed character that he was, uh -huh. was he didn't go do market research. People don't know. what. How do I know I want something that I don't know is out there? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. <laughs> he set that for us. So don't ask them those type of questions. Go ask them, what are your biggest struggles, your, your difficulties, your your challenges, and see how you can take your data and information and mold your story around that. That's what will appeal to them. What are your struggles? Right. What are your struggles? That's where you get the universality of it. What are your struggles? Yeah. I like right. to call it struggles, strife, setbacks, and scars. Struggles, strife, setbacks, and scars. Did I get that? Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, those are the things that people want you to want you to give them the solutions to. They do. And on the tail end of that is success. We don't want to just hear mm. a bunch of stories about failure either. Mm -hmm. Right. But the order is important. Ah, don't yeah. tell us just how great you are up front. And then mention a couple struggles. And even the scars at the end are still, look at me. And you know, I'm pounding my chest. I'm great. No, that's not what we want. Mm -hmm. We want to struggle, the strife, the setbacks you had, those points where you were get ready to give up and it looked like all was lost. And then, right. boom, 
there was the answer. Those gave you the scars that made you tougher, mm-hmm. and that led to your success. See, that's why I think the history of science is so fascinating, mm-hmm. because there were so many struggles and so many points where one person gave up and maybe someone else took over the, the hunt for that solution, or someone almost gave up and, and they were prompted to go just a little bit further, because you don't get that in a lot of scientific literature. No. And you don't read a scientific paper that says, these are all the things we tried that didn't work. And right. yet that struggle is what's going to make your effort real and, and meaningful to someone else, perhaps. Oh, it is. I was listening to a podcast series earlier this year about the discovery of the polio vaccine and okay. hearing the story of Salk and Sabin. Mm-hmm. Who were, there was some conflict there, right? There was mm-hmm. some competition going on and they thought they had the answer. And then they did the, the tr- uh, test vaccination and people started dying. And it's like, oh, my, that was failure. And that made the story more riveting to me yes. because I wanted to know what did they do to overcome that? Right. Uh, our, our coach, Craig Valentine, does mm-hmm. a great job of that. He's so great with metaphors. He said, you know, it's kind of like you sit down to watch a pay-per-view sporting event. Mm-hmm. And let's use American football. They, they kick off, and all of a sudden the power goes out. And we come back. It's the end of the fourth quarter, and the game is over. It's 30 to 27. <laughs> All right, great. I can watch that information on ESPN highlights later that night. I want to watch the struggle, what happened, the back and forth, a game yes, that close. Right. And if it came down to the last play, that's what we want to experience. Yes, that's what we want to experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, I tell you what, Michael, by way of wrapping this up, let's do this. Uh, I'm going to challenge you in, in a minute or two to, uh, to take no, no more than about a minute or two and tell me, To sum all this up, what is one thing that you think someone giving a technical talk, whether it be a scientist, engineer, financial person, someone with that analytical bent, what is one thing you would tell them as far as connecting with their audience in their next presentation? It's something you said earlier. It, It has to do with don't just give us a bunch of data. We don't need that. What we need is your interpretation. How did that data bring the data to life? Mm. Turn it into a story. How did you struggle to take that data and turn it into a positive benefit? Whether you were helping five people, five million people, discovering a, a cure for a virus or a better way to live our daily lives, whatever that is. But take us on that journey of the discovery of the solution and why that's important to us. Journey of discovery and why it's important. That's a yeah. great way to sum this up. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you, Michael. I've My certainly pleasure. enjoyed having this conversation with you. I, I see a sign over your your shoulder there. Speaking CPR. Tell us just a little bit about that and and how people might connect with you if they want to hear more Absolutely. of your wisdom. Yeah, company uh, started speaking CPR actually uh, part time while I was a financial advisor. I I enjoyed being a financial planner, but it wasn't my passion. I discovered early on once I got into speaking that this is really what I wanted to do, mm. and really what propelled that forward was the speech coaching uh, course and, and certification that you and I each went through. Mm-hmm. So I started this company in 2011, and what I do is I work with individuals and groups to help them become more confident and concise 
not just storytellers, but presenters, whether they're online or in person. Uh, that's all I do. That's speaking CPR. We, we're breathing life into lifeless presentations. And I like that. Breathing life into lifeless presentations. <laughs> yes. And if you'd like to go deeper into the storytelling arena, I have a complimentary resource. It's got 52 storytelling tips. What it is, it's, a, it's, it's an email that comes to your email box once a week. It's a five-minute audio lesson. There's a PDF transcription of it you can download. And the idea behind it, David, is slowly build one skill on top of another. It's just forced repetition, reinforcement over a one your time. And if you'd like those, there's no cost, no obligation. You won't get spammed to death. It's 52storytellingtips.com. 52, the numeral 52storytellingtips.com. Yes. And it's a free resource they can get from you. Absolutely. No cost, no obligation. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your time with me this morning. Sure. I look forward to it. And uh, I look forward to hearing this podcast and also the one you do with Randy. That's right. That's right. Coming up, uh, my next interview, in fact, so uh, which is scheduled. So if all goes well, it should be the next episode to come out after this one. We'll be with Randy Olson, well-known scientist turned filmmaker. And uh, we're going to hear from him about his story framework that he perceives is has held true throughout as long as there's been stories. So he doesn't claim to have created it. He has discovered it and popularized it. And what it is, you will have to come back for the next episode to find out. This is The Power of Story and Science. I'm David Oti. If you'd like to get in touch with me with any comments or feedback on this program or suggestions for future interview guests, the easiest way to reach me would be to go to storyandscience.com. That's simply storyandscience.com. Thank you for listening, for watching, for being part of The Power of Story and Science. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.